Hello and welcome to this podcast series brought to you by Connect Health Tech. Connect Health Tech is Cambridge University's Enterprise Zone, the gateway into the university's life sciences and health tech community for collaborators, companies and investors. We work to join the dots between medicine and technology across the Cambridge ecosystem and beyond by strengthening interdisciplinary bridges between academia, industry and healthcare, we facilitate real-world possibilities, transforming innovative ideas into tangible outcomes that benefit society. In our podcast series, Joining the Dots, we explore and discuss a diverse range of themes and topics of interest, including developing interdisciplinary collaborations, finding the right partner, and impactful business support for entrepreneurs. I'm Paula Rogers-Brown, Business Community Manager for Connect Health Tech, and in this special two-guest episode of Joining the Dots, we explore the theme of taking research from idea to proof of concept and beyond. Joining me today is Jason Mellard, co-founder and CEO of Start Codon, a life science venture capital fund and venture builder, and Jerome Verheer, co-founder and CEO of Sumerian a biotech startup that leverages microfabrication technology to build smart materials and develop novel cell assaying applications. Sumerian were also part of the very first cohort of companies to take part in Start Codon's inaugural accelerator program in 2020. Welcome and thank you very much for joining me today. So let's start um, with you, Jason, briefly. How did you start your career journey? Ooh. I will try to keep it brief, but basically, I started my career journey thinking I was going to be an academic, despite all the protests from my family that I should be a medical doctor and preferably a neurosurgeon because they make money. And I said, no, I'm going to be a PhD academic scientist and a professor someday, and maybe someday I'll win a Nobel Prize because that was my dream. And then quite quickly after my PhD, probably midway through my PhD, I realized this is not the life for me. (laughs) I love science, but I'm definitely not... Uh, one to stay at the bench. I was horrible at the bench, but I really loved the science and the ideas and connecting with people. So I was able to go on a couple of different internships, one in the tech transfer office during my postdoc. I did a business plan competition. I, I won uh, with two of my good friends, Massimo, another friend named Jeroen, who's uh, from the Netherlands. You know, it's a good name. And we got beautiful experience from that. And I realized, okay, this is something I'm really passionate about. So I ended up moving to Cambridge did a brief stint in consultancy, then worked at Cambridge Enterprise in tech transfer, learned all about commercialization from them, made lifelong friends as well. Then eventually made my way to Cambridge Epigenetics, where I was an early employee and rose through the ranks of becoming CEO. And then the dream job opportunity landed on my plate. The idea that I could raise a fund and with my co-founder, Dan Rook, set up and basically an organization that would support founders with all that we've learned and all the networks that we've been building over the years, it ticked all the right boxes for me. So I never started out with the idea of becoming an investor, but when the opportunity arose, particularly early stage and trying to find exciting cutting edge science like Sumerian, I thought, this is brilliant. Fantastic. Jerome, what about you? How did you arrive at Sumerian? What was your journey? Yeah, it's very much an arriving to, and it's very much a journey as well. Uh, very much like Jason said, also always been very excited about science and innovation, also from a young sort of age as well. And I think, I mean, I haven't thought back this far in a long time, but thinking back at my high school times, I always thought like I will be a physicist. I really, really loved physics. 
And then the last couple of years of high school, I was introduced to biology and I was like, oh, biology is actually so fascinating and so exciting that I completely changed and pivoted and started to, to study life sciences uh, in university. And I did like it that a bunch of research projects around Alzheimer's, I've, I've been in this sort of neuroscience field for a while as well. But of course, I wasn't satisfied. So I studied a bit more and got back into that sort of like physics and chemistry world after all. And I studied nanotechnology engineering. So that got me a bit of, of a taste of that other world as well. Did a bunch of research projects in a different institutes across the world as well. And I landed back in Belgium. Uh, where I worked for a couple of years as a project manager in sort of a medtech SME. And while that was quite fun, it became quite boring quite quickly, honestly. Uh, <laughs> so I needed to shift gears. And that's when I came to Cambridge to do my PhD in, uh, in clinical neurosciences. And that's really what brought me sort of here and on this journey that I, I was on. So I early on in Cambridge, started to get involved with a bunch of uh, sort of entrepreneurial societies. That's where I also got to know my co-founder, Tarun, and we can talk a bit about that later as well. And uh, yeah, really tried to connect the dots and uh, interact with a lot of interesting people. And that led me to starting the company. And uh, yeah, we've been growing it ever since. So it's been quite exciting. I think one of the, the things that both of you said that has struck me is that um, it wasn't a, a linear pathway. We'll touch upon that a little later because it's it's interesting to understand that there are moments in your journey, opportunities, and you have to be open to 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 roll with those, which is which is great to hear. What would you say is an average day in your current role? And Jerome, we'll come to you first, and then we'll we'll move on to Jason. At the moment, everything is incredibly dynamic uh, because we're an early stage company. Um, so we have to manage whatever is put on our plates for that day, that week, that month, that can be very much geared towards fundraising or the R&D side of things or interacting with uh, potential customers or clients or partners as well. But what happens on a typical day is I would get into the office, which is in the West Cambridge side, uh, to close to where the Cavendish is, is located as well. And I would catch up with my co-founder, Tarun. We will discuss what is it that we have to tackle today We'll exchange all the information so that um, we share whatever we need to share with each other, whether or not that's on the business or also on a personal side, which is important as well, of course. And then we tackle those problems uh, until they're done. And I think for myself, there's still sort of a, a very strong balance between actually going into the lab, getting my hands dirty and doing actual experiments, and then also still trying to work on the business, the commercial side, interacting with customers, et cetera. So, I would say I'm still 50-50 between um, hands-on lab work and growing the business. But since we've raised some funding, we're going to look for some recruits to grow our capabilities. So that might all change in the near future. And it sounds like that with that 50-50 split, um, Jason, you, you you might have a, something to say there because there's that, that, that tension when you're growing. Yeah, it's a very interesting question, particularly because we're investors, but we're also more hands-on than a traditional investor would be. So we spend a lot of our time kind of like a startup helping other startups. So when we're telling people, trust us, these are issues, we're living those issues ourselves. Oh, you need to sort out your insurance. We'll help you because we're sorting out our insurance. Oh, you need to do fundraising. We'll yeah. help you. Guess what? <laughs> we're in the middle of fundraising ourselves for our next fund. So these are all things that we're going through ourselves, wearing multiple hats, having a lean team with ever-increasing workload. And one of the challenges we face as well is that our team remains more or less static. We're expanding a bit, but we're constantly investing in new companies and constantly finding 
then we have to help and support them. So when we started out, obviously, if it was a team of four helping four companies, it's very different than a team of four helping 15. That's a challenge, which means that, yes, we're having to add out a couple of team members, but we're also having to improve our processes, become more lean, make sure we put in place the infrastructure to help us manage that workload. And most importantly, um, very similar to what we did with Samarium, we do with all our companies, is how do we find others that can help? mentors, chairs, meds, you name it, to really bring together a whole village of contacts and experienced um, players to help support our companies because it can't possibly be on our shoulders. So a good amount of my day-to-day, besides running the you know, regular operations, and Dan is fantastic at that, or scoping out you know new companies for us to invest in, which is Michael's um, main focus, and then also M is our talent director helping build teams and helping create our network. I'm out here evangelizing and trying to market what we do fundamentally comes down to people. And I spend a lot of my time trying to find experts and people to help our companies grow and thrive. Because that's really what we're about is helping them access the resources they need to be successful. A very big change from where I was before was I was running a company myself and trying to grow and be more operational. It's much more of a facilitator and supportive role. Now, let's talk about innovations in healthcare a little bit. Now, Jason, um, just to you, I know from previous interviews that you've done that you are quite excited about innovations in epigenetics and 3D chromatin architecture and immunology. Are there other areas of healthcare where you would like to see innovation or where you think innovation should be happening? I'm going to say all areas. And that's not a cop-out answer. That's exactly what I mean. Because every time I have a conversation, there's a new area of focus that I didn't even realize was a problem that could be solved and needs to be solved. I went to a dinner last night with some of the heads of NHS England and local supporters in the healthcare space. And just talking to some of the GPs who were there, they said, oh, everybody talks about secondary care in the hospitals. What about primary care? We need help doing A, B, and C. And then the secondary care setting, they're talking about X, Y, and Z is productivity. It's not just new drugs and new diagnostic tests, but it's just better ways to triage patients, better ways to manage their uh, caseload. There are a lot of opportunities for improvement. And so I think that every day I'm expanding, and I think all investors should, expanding my mind as to what the problems are in the life science industry and healthcare, and thinking outside of the box. When we first started, we would simply say digital health, med tech, therapeutics, and diagnostics. But actually, there's so much more to it. And what I'm really keen on are platform technologies. Everything that we back is a platform because they're very versatile and they have the potential for discovering new applications that weren't envisioned from day one. If we were only focused on single assets, it would be one problem, one solution, and you're hoping that by the time they get to market, they're still a great fit. When you have a platform technology, then you have scope for really pivoting and expanding in new directions. And I find that so exciting. I like to be led by the market and the pull, like really clear unmet needs. But sometimes there's more blue sky platforms that are so versatile. You have to just put them out there and let the market tell you where they best fit. So in both cases, I do think there's room for innovation across all facets of um, healthcare. And maybe some quick examples of things that particularly interest me lately. Mental health. We are all stressed out from everything that's going on now and everything we've lived through the past two and a half years. I think connectivity is something I'm really keen on as well. There are people who have the answer out there and we don't have good ways of connecting them to one another. And sometimes the solution you need to improve patient benefit is just connecting two people. Or if there's an innovation, there might be an existing solution. You just don't know. 
So how do you connect the problems and solutions more effectively rather than thinking you have to come up with a new solution? So those are two things that lately I'm really interested in. And thirdly, I would say research tool enablers. I think there's something really exciting around platforms that allow you to make things faster, cheaper, better discoveries, discover new things. Because without those early discoveries, you won't have the innovations downstream. Yeah, yeah. Research tool enablers. That's great. And you mentioned connectivity, Jason. Of course, Connect Health is a great tool for connecting people from different areas of life sciences and technology. We've got a great resource in our range of super connectors and the online community who can help you navigate the ecosystem more easily. And this leads me nicely into talking about platform technologies. Jerome, tell us a little bit about Samarian's technology platform and its potential applications for the drug discovery process. Yeah, uh, happy to. That's that's what I'm most excited about most of the time, of course. And thanks, Jason, for setting that up so nicely for me there. <laughs> so I think the, the focus of Samarian is very much on enabling technologies and on the tool space to sort of accelerate and enhance the drug discovery process, obviously, ultimately to help develop better drugs for high unmet clinical needs faster, essentially. But what we've done is we've actually developed a non-obvious solution to a big problem. And that's been quite an interesting journey. We can unravel that a bit further uh, later on as well. But we've taken sort of um, science and technologies that come from the physics space and specifically from the microfabrication space, so the, the technologies that are used to make computer chips, for example. And we've taken those and adapted them to make a microcarrier platform that can sort of accelerate and innovate the way pharma companies study drugs. Um, because, of course, most of the drug discovery process happens in vitro or in a petri dish, which means pharma companies use cells, put them in a plate and then put drugs on there. And it's a good way of doing it. The only issue is that there hasn't been a lot of innovation in terms of uh, really sort of like turning this idea upside down. Cells are always stuck to the bottom of a plate, which makes it um, notoriously hard to uh, innovate or to accelerate uh, this process. Um, and in the past, there has been a lot of innovation around, let's say, microfluidics, and you have companies like 10x Genomics, and there's light cost discovery in, in Cambridge as well. And they've taken very bright sort of um, ideas and innovations around how can we accelerate drug discovery on cells that live in suspension, so that want to be in a liquid. But everybody always forgets about cells that like to stick to a surface, which is the bulk of the cells that pharma companies study. So we said, let's try and solve that problem. So that's what we did with creating our Samocyte microcarrier platform. So essentially what it is, it's a small shuttling vehicle for small colonies of cells. So imagine, let's say, 10 cells in a small colony that are stuck to a small little surface, and now we can manipulate the surface in a liquid in 3D. So we had to sort of like focus to identify what sort of like these key sort of applications are that we're going to go after. Mm -hmm. And the only way that we could do that is by developing a product, going into the market, testing it out and interacting with people who want to use it. And we have identified a couple of very key problems and bottlenecks in the pharma sort of drug discovery process that we can solve. What we can do with our technology is we can prepare cells in an assay ready format. So you can freeze them, for example, on our microcarriers. And then if a cell biologist needs to do this task that the chemist says, they just go to the freezer, take the cells, they're attached to the microcarriers, dump it into a plate and do the assay. 
And that's, for instance, a very straightforward and simple solution that is said to really revolutionize um, sort of a lot of the processes that take part in sort of the drug discovery cycle. So can you just um, just share with our with our audience, you know, name a couple of applications for the Semasite platform that we could potentially see further down the line? So I think there's three areas specifically that we're focusing on right now. One is compound profiling. And this is really seeking to that uh, assay-ready cell product idea that we mm-hmm. that we just talked about, sort of really cutting down the the later phases of the drug discovery cycle by let's say 20 to 50 percent. The other areas that we're working on that are quite exciting is cell multiplexing. So it's really difficult at the moment to combine cells of a ver- of different backgrounds, so different types of cells, let's say into one system because you can't deconvolute very easily which cell you're looking at. So we've developed barcoding um, sort of methodologies with our microcarriers, whereby we can now start to screen, let's say, 10 to 100 different cell types uh, in one well, for example, and then deconvolute which cell we've been studying later down as well. And this opens up a lot of interesting areas like complicated co-cultures, where you want to co-culture tens of different types of cells and, uh, let's say, taking a different approach to what a lot of people are doing around spheroids, really combining those different cell types but keeping them spatially separated (laughs) so that you get other types of information out of those systems and i think the last area that we're really excited about and we see a lot of pull here as well from from pharma and biotech companies is around developing more biologically relevant cell modeling systems that can be deployed earlier in the drug discovery cycle so Lots of pharma companies like to work with IPS-derived materials. They like to work with primary cells from patients. But these are very scarce resources. So very often they will use that just at the last steps of the drug discovery cycle before they go into IND-enabling studies or preclinical trials or something like that. And we are enabling pharma companies to use those precious cell lines, but do bigger experiments on them. So opening up the breadth of information um, from these cell types that are platform essentially i think what's what's really interesting with um with the work that you've been you've been doing and developing to date is that position of the interdisciplinary with your background being of the um the biomedical life sciences and tarun's from that physical material science background what three to five things would you say are really important to know in creating effective collaborations across disciplines to get to a point where you guys are at now you know that's not an easy journey for everybody i mean for us it's been very important to really take this multidisciplinary and also collaborative approach of course and i think we've been quite fortunate in general not only in working with start codon but also with working across the sort of like Cambridge ecosystem because there are so many exciting players around and people that you can fall back on or get advice from or set up partnership projects or collaborative projects with. And I think the foremost important factor here is personal connection. I think it's really important not to go into any conversation saying like, oh, I want something out of this. You really want to sort of like foster um, that personal relationship and then you'll see what leads out of this. And I think the best collaborations come on the back of this. It's not going to somebody say like, ah, I want to collaborate with you on this. No, you go in you develop a personal relation and then in chatting you, you you figure out what what the best way forward is a second point is information sharing and trying to teach each other about each other's disciplines 
because of course very often people speak a different language whether or not that's a business language versus an R&D language or whether or not that's a physics language versus a biology language so I think teaching each other a little bit about what sort of is under the hood and what their type of research is like is very useful because again then you can start to tinker and come up with creative ways of combining those mm. um, those technologies for example and I think the other thing as well is it's, it's, it's okay to sit in silo and discuss with with friends or collaborators on what you could do together and, and, and some amazing ideas that you might cook up. But of course, you also have to go out and test it and do it as well. Um, so you need to take an action at some point to, to try and go to the lab and, and do a little pilot project uh, or something like that as well. And I think the last thing you need to sort of like figure out whether or not the problem you think you're solving is a real problem as well because very often people from different backgrounds come together and they start to yeah brainstorm and they come up with all these fancy amazing new innovative ideas uh, which could be very technologically advanced for example but you don't want to go into a situation where you're going to spend a year developing something and then nobody's actually interested in it and you just developed it because you thought it was cool I'm not saying that cool things shouldn't be developed, but it's always good to fact check whether or not you're yeah. building something relevant, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Good to have the, the problem there first that you need to solve. Um, Jason, do you agree um, or do you have anything to add to that? You know, Jerome's talked about building connectivity, learning, being open to learning from each other's disciplines and, you know, understanding, you know, is there a problem there to be solved? Yeah, I think it's, a, it's an excellent point. A lot of it comes down to the self-awareness that you have to have from day one that um, you don't know all the answers. And so finding somebody who comes at it from a different angle is going to help you really get to the solution faster. I like to tell people that we all want to get to the you know top of Mount Everest, but you want to do it alone. It takes a team to get up there. So diversity in thought, diversity in background is really important. And that interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary kind of bridge brings a level of diversity in the same way that we see diversity with ethnicity or gender or age or socioeconomic background. So I'm a big proponent of any opportunity to bring somebody from a different different way of thinking, a different mode of acting to the table means so much. And so I implore anyone listening to this that there's multiple ways to consider that diversity incorporating it, incorporating it into your thought process because it's essential. And so many studies have shown that when people come from all those diverse backgrounds, you actually end up with better business outcomes. So it's not even about morality, it's about good business sense. Something that's really incredible about Sumerian is the physics meeting, the biology and coming together so seamlessly to solve real world problems. Too often, if you're in your own silo, in your own field, in your own hype bubble, you can't see the possibilities. And things that might be obvious to a physicist aren't obvious to a biologist and vice versa. So it is really powerful when you get that overlap and those two come together. So Jason, um, let's um, talk a little bit about the research to proof of concept process. Um, what initial advice would you give to someone who wishes to take their research to that next level and develop that proof of concept and maybe create a spin out venture? What would you, what would you, what advice would you give? Well, it might be counterintuitive to some, but I would say have lots of discussions before you do anything. Because it's so easy to just jump straight to the experiment. And then you're halfway in and you think, oh no, I didn't plan this experiment properly, but now I can't go back because <laughs> I don't have any money or resources. <laughs> so I say, think, talk to people you know and trust. 
you'd be surprised. I mean, IP, obviously, you've got to protect your intellectual property position, but go to known trusted advisors who can keep your confidence, have the discussion, really think it through. Why are you doing the experiment? How are you designing the experiment? Who are you doing with with? What are you hoping to get gain from it? And then go and execute on it. Because it's all about quality as opposed to quantity. No one's really judging you on how many things you've done. They're judging you on doing a few things really well with purpose, with a clear outcome that makes sense. So I would tell people that before you start on that journey of really getting that pilot data, which is so important, do spend the time to do your homework, understand the variables that you're working with, understand why you're doing it, and speak to people, talk to people. Same thing goes with the idea for your company. Everybody thinks their own idea is clever. So it's very, very exceedingly rare that someone's going to steal your idea for a company. But if you have good friends and good advisors around you who can give you constructive feedback, you should go and talk to them. Because maybe your first idea is not quite the right idea. You might want to tweak it. You might want to hone it. You might want to shift it. And all those things, I think, are really the first step before you jump straight into the pilot experiment side of things. So if somebody was going to come to you, if somebody listening right now and thinking, OK, I'll contact Jason and, you know, I'll, I, you know, I'll talk to him. I'll, that's the discussion I'm going to have. What do they need to think about? What should be in their playbook to come and have that talk with you about their great idea they want to convert? Well, they need to have a, an understanding of self, because first and foremost, I'm judging the person and the team. Because I figure if you have the right team, they'll be able to accomplish anything that you throw at them because life is full of challenges. So first and foremost, they need to be able to convince me and convince themselves that they are the right person and individual to do this. And then I want to know that they have self-awareness and they'll say, I have some gaps in what I can do. So I'm going to build a team and that team will consist of these people because they help close those gaps. That's number two. Number three is that they've got a really detailed understanding of the problems that they're trying to solve. It may not be the end all and be all of problems, maybe it'll change in the future, but come to me and convince me that there's some really big earth shattering problem that you're so passionate about solving that you have now come up with a really great solution and then you sell me on the solution. That's the order that I want to see things. The team, the problem, and really understanding the market opportunity there and that unmet need. You've spoken to people, you've had interviews, primary market research, speaking to people. I'm always impressed by that. Don't just say, I read online or I read a market research report. Tell me you went out and spoke to real live human beings and pressure tested your ideas. And then say, I've come up with some really great platforms, some really great solution to solve all these problems that I've identified. That's when you've got my attention and that's how you end up getting investment. Jerome, from your experience, are there any other factors that you would potentially add there to Jason's? I mean, Jason highlighted a, a lot of great things there. I think the fact that he suggests discussing and brainstorming a lot um, is good as well, because sometimes I think I'm talking too much and brainstorming too much with my uh, work colleague, for instance, Tarun as well. But I agree, the more you exchange information and the more you chat to each other, it puts you in a position where you've uncovered all the different areas that you might sort of um, see in the future, potential barriers that might come up. And it's better to preemptively try to see them coming rather than to stumble on them. Um, so completely agree with that as well. The other thing is indeed also speaking to people. I think it's so, so, so important. I've met people in the past as well who said like, I have this amazing idea. I don't want to tell you because I'm scared that you might steal it from me and I'm going to try and develop it and get back to you in two years time. <laughs> it will never, ever, ever get developed. We took this approach where we tried to talk as much as we could to as many people 
from as many backgrounds, both in a professional context, but also in a, per, a personal context as well, to really sort of like sanity check. And sometimes you're brainstorming with yourself by talking to somebody and some, sometimes this other person gives you a lot of good information in any case. So there's always, it's a win-win situation in, in, in talking about your project with somebody. Yeah. I think in terms of what important factors are, I think for researchers out there also coming from academia, I think we said this a couple of times, finding that key problem that you think is worth solving is step number one for me. Then step number two, after you've done all that brainstorming uh, that Jason also highlighted, you want to go and prototype something, try and develop something that you can show that you have a bit of data. Because of course, we're all still in sort of a very scientific field. Uh, people like to see some form of data or an early product or something like that. And then go out and test that and potentially show that to a couple of people who might know a lot about this kind of technology or who might be your customers in the future as well. This is sort of speaking about that primary market research that Jason was highlighting. You can read a thousand market reports and articles, but then you speak to one person at a pharma company and you say like, well, in theory, this would be great, but we would never pay for this. And then, well, then maybe you don't want to develop it further, right? You might want to pivot a little bit. You might want to sort of like change the solution that you're creating, or you might want to change the problem that you're trying to tackle a little bit. So also don't be scared of the fact that you came up with a specific strategy and now you need to change that strategy. It's better to straight change the strategy soon rather than wasting a lot of resources and then changing the strategy in a year's time, of course. And I think one of the things that sort of academic scientists sometimes struggle with as well is the problem is one thing and the solution is one thing, but you also need to think about how are you going to manufacture this? How are you going to get it into the market? What kind of business model are you going to use? And very often, if you start to think about those things very early on, your product concept or the specific niche of the problem that you're focusing on might change slightly. So I think it's really important to really early on think about that business model and uh, the manufacturing and all these aspects as well. It will only set you up for success down the line, I think. Yeah. Great, great advice. Thank you so much, both of you. Uh, Joanne, just sticking with you at the moment, before joining the Start Code on um, Accelerator program, you undertook a, a nano doctoral training centre, translational research fellowship, um, and you also did the Impulse program at the Maxwell Centre. Um, can you expand on how beneficial were those programmes to you? I think they were incredibly beneficial to us and they helped us get into a stage where we could go to Jason uh, explain what we did, do a little pitch, and then uh, ultimately get them convinced, uh, which set us up for, for a beautiful journey uh, beyond that as well, of course. But I think for Tarun, my co-founder, and I, it's been an interesting journey. We, we know each other already for nine years, um, and we did our PhDs around the same time in Cambridge. But we are also managing sort of a society here, which is called QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. And that's how we got to know each other. Yeah. And we worked really well together on a bunch of little society projects and these kind of things as well. And then at the end of our PhD, we started to do that, that brainstorming game that we just talked about. And we came up with some technology that we wanted to uh, potentially build and see if there was a need for it. And that's when we approached the Nano DTC and they gave us that funding, that fellowship, um, and that essentially gave us a year of freedom to try and develop the basic sort of technology behind our platform and develop IP around it. And if it weren't for that sort of fellowship, we wouldn't have had the same freedom to develop sort of our technology 
with funding in a university setting with access to all the, the reagents and tools and equipment that, that the University of Cambridge has to offer, of course. So that was really the first pivotal part for us. And that led to the development of two pieces of, uh, of IP that we commercialized or filed for with Cambridge Enterprise. So, of course, we work quite closely with Cambridge Enterprise as well. And I think on the back of that, we started to talk to a lot of people. We started to speak to people like Ian Tomlinson uh, as well, who has a, a big involvement with Start Codon. They gave us a bunch of advice. So we started to develop our story. And then by doing the impulse program, we were able to sanity check our story. We were able to then tell our story to a bunch of advisors in a very short time frame. So it's sort of a week program where you try to optimize as many parts of your business as you can, talk to people, uh, pitch and try to sort of optimize and update your plans and your um, your story. And I think that was very pivotal as well. And it helped us sort of like set up the company in and in to go for a into a good direction, I would say. Yeah. So it sounds like you 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 followed the steps that Jason has talked about and getting that playbook in order you're doing your homework, so to speak, and then being able to to approach um, an organization like Start Coder that can really help um, accelerate your your startup there. I think there are some key steps that people can really take home from this 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 conversation, which is which is fantastic. Just thinking about that proof of concept journey, Jerome, has it taken longer than you expected so far? I think it did take longer than we expected so far. I think it will always be the case. So you have to plan for that. I think first and foremost, managing your expectations are important. I'm very much an optimist myself. So I always think that we can do a lot of things very quickly, <laughs> but it's better to like hyper-focus on a couple of things that are incredibly important and then try to, how they, people say, try to um, under-promise and over-deliver. That's really what, what you should aspire to do. Certainly when speaking to uh, future investors or customers as well, you don't want to be in a situation where you promise X, Y, and Z to a potential customer. And then two months later, you say like, well, we're very much behind on our schedule and we'll speak again in a year's <laughs> yeah. time. Then you're going to lose that customer, obviously. So give yourself very long timelines, if you will. And what I'm trying to say is very often you will have to pivot a little bit. So you'll potentially spend a year's time in developing something. Then you go out and test it. And maybe it doesn't work as well as you think it does. Or maybe the need for the specific product wasn't as big as you thought it was. So then you might have to go back to the drawing board and sort of um, do it all over again. So I think in terms of sort of the best advice I can give here is like think really carefully around when you're going to approach your first investor because once you approach an investor and they give you some capital then the clock starts ticking and you start to need to deliver. Sure. I was talking with a good friend of mine last week and he's in a completely different space um, more around the battery technology space and he took technology out of the lab and developed it very quickly and got some investment in and then at the end of their first investment round realized that the materials they developed were not commercially scalable so they went back to the drawing board and developed a whole different sort of materials platform and i mean they're doing quite well but it was really stressful for them because their investors were not per se very happy mm -hmm. and then they had to go to futures investors to explain why the whole pivot was there etc so if you are in a fortunate situation which i think lots of people in cambridge are where you can tinker a little bit longer in a university setting to really sort of like develop that technology and that problem and don't do academic research, do some commercial research in an academic setting, then go to the investors and then get that clock ticking, I think. 
It's a, it's a critical point um, in talking about those early stage funds and, and how best to use them. And I wonder, Jason, just to bring you in here, um, what advice would you would you give to that focus um, for a startup? Yeah, so just building on, on all the excellent advice that your own gave, it's about identifying the killer experiments mm. and then doing those. Because some people like to kind of go around the periphery and say, oh, I'll do these experiments because I'm pretty sure what the outcome will be and it's safe. And then I feel like I'm getting, it's like a positive feedback loop. Oh, my experiments are working. I'm doing so well. But they know the real killer experiments are like three things. And they just avoid it because they're afraid it might not work. And I say, I love acronyms. So fail is first attempt in learning. So go for the killer experiment, design it well. And if it doesn't work, Make sure it's the kind of experiment you can learn from and then develop, pivot, go back to the drawing board and then go on to the next killer experiment. Because it is, again, it's about the quality of what you do as mm -hmm. opposed to the quantity. So if you get to the make or break stage when you're going for an investment in VCs or whoever it may be, will look and say, well, the killer experiments are these things. You haven't done them. You go, oh, but look at all this amazing data I have from all these other experiments. And they go, that's nice. Good for you. Pat, pat on the head. Now... I want to see the killer experiment data because those are the riskiest. And if you can prove to me that it works in this context or you answer those key questions, mm. then that's what I'm going to be um, going for. And I think whether there's non-dilutive funding internally or maybe early stage uh, kind of venture or angel funding or you know accelerator programs, whatever it may be, it should always be that killer experiment, go for it. It might feel scary. It might feel intimidating. But I guarantee you that that amount of courage is, is what it's going to take to make your business successful and the ability to be resilient if it doesn't work and have the agility to pivot in new directions. And that's why, coming back to what I said earlier about teams being so important, it's because the right team will face those challenges head on. And if it doesn't work, they'll be able to pivot and grow and learn from that challenge. I think if everything you're doing is working, you're not failing at something, you're not trying hard enough. So keep pushing. Obviously, don't burn through all your cash and harm people. But honestly, <laughs> if you're not failing at something, then you really aren't stretching yourself enough. So go out there and like really go for the killer experiments. Yeah, I think there's something there, isn't there, about that fail and fail fast and learn from it, um, have no regrets. Um, because it, everything's a learning point in the journey of creating something new, whether it's a business or whatever it might be, learn at every point that you can in that journey. And I think for what that's that's such great advice. I'd like that acronym. Can you repeat that for us, Jason? Yes, so fail is first attempt in learning. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> To find out more about Connect Health Tech and join our conversations online, go to our website at connect.cam.ac.uk forward slash health tech. Jason Mellad is a scientist entrepreneur passionate about translating innovative technologies into better patient outcomes. Start Code on leverages the unique resources of the Cambridge cluster to identify, seed fund and drive the success of truly disruptive healthcare startups. Previously, Jason was CEO of Cambridge Epigenetics and Business Development Manager for Horizon Discovery's Diagnostics Division. He also served as an associate at Cambridge Enterprise, the Technology Transfer Office of the University of Cambridge. Jeroen Verheer leads the development of Sumerian's applications, 
He is driven to address drug discovery bottlenecks with the Semicide platform through commercial scaling and partnering. His previous research activities include the development of novel renal cell carcinoma screening tools and RNA and cell therapeutics for spinal cord injury.